0: Today we're going to uh, do a very, it's driving me crazy, but we're going to do a very, very brief interaction with the problem of evil as the, our, the next doubt that we're looking at. Um, uh, there's It is number five, our fifth issue we're looking at, does the existence of evil and suffering in the world mean that God doesn't exist? And we're going to look at this, and I, wanna, I don't want this to be overly academic, and it's hard because uh, a couple reasons. Here's the first. This was one of my academic areas in my master's program. Uh, this and uh, the connection in the Bible between sovereignty, God's power, and control over the world, and our responsibility, and how those things get mashed and merged together in the Bible, and they can be, uh, it can make some scriptures and some Bible uh, concepts quite uh, quite confusing, but you must know uh, a couple things. First is, why in the world would anybody ever cover something like this? Um, This is considered by many to be the toughest question anybody uh, can face in any religion, um so uh i think it's important because this is the seedbed of doubt you remember evil is the concept uh suffering is the result right so uh i probably the number one thing that's driven people away from faith is probably suffering uh i'd imagine um you know and god not delivering them when they asked um i also want you to know that for many many even non-christian religion scholars how your religion deals with evil and suffering is the alpha issue the alpha issue there are people that say there's a lot of important things but how your religion interacts and doesn't solve problem of evil and suffering but tries to resolve it within its framework is maybe the most important function religious uh, function your religion serves in your mind and heart because suffering touches everyone no one tends to get out of this world without some type of suffering so um, uh, even if you think about it I've, I've had people challenge that when I used to do this at at uh, that at the, at the at at a, co- a collegiate level, um, even if somebody has a disease, and there are there is a rare disease where your nerve endings you can't feel in your skin, they still suffer because they end up inadvertently hurting themselves, and they can't. F- get that pleasure the touch sensation pleasure either so they're still suffering it's more mental suffering even with somebody that has parts of their body that they're unable to feel pain because the nerves are deadened. so a uh, crucial crucial facet of any religion um and i will just say this this may sound like hyperbole over the top course pastors say this there's no better religion when it comes to evil and suffering than christianity none there's no, there's no one even in the ballpark. A distant second might be Buddhism, Buddhists, the Buddhistic take on how to deal with evil and suffering, uh, but even that is is fraught with with issues and difficulties. Now, I made a joke last week about solving this. You're not going to leave this class, or if you come next week, fully satisfied. Um, there is no bombshell, bomb drop answer for everything. Um, uh, I can remember I was doing a Q&A uh, uh, up, up, up in, in Kentucky some years ago. And there was a guy in the back just sitting there looking at the front and said, I, I was going through the worst suffering of my life. I had a, 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 a bout with, uh, with a, a flare-up of meningitis, and I prayed and God didn't do anything. So this And I just said, look, I don't know why God didn't do anything with that. I I, I really don't. But there's too much evidence on the other side where he has worked and uh, to say that he doesn't. So just part of the reason this will not be fully satisfying is there's no way somebody can give you all the detailed answers you want. Why in my life did X happen? I, I I, mean, you imagine what kind of background knowledge you need to know to even know what the ins and outs of that would be. Um, but I've said this before. Perhaps the most, one of the most difficult things for mature Christians is trying to give God the benefit of the doubt when it looks like if he'd acted, be in his best interest. Uh, one of the examples I've used uh, for many, many years that's m- probably will hit home with you is I... Alex was with me on this one, too. I wanted God to raise up Nabil Qureshi. I really wanted that. He had been prayed over, prophesied over. He had hundreds of thousands. Is that fair? Even if we cut in half the Twitter followers all that stuff and say, you were still talking tens of thousands of faithful Christians praying for him, and he still died of, of advanced stomach cancer. Um, and, and the reason that was doubly damning was because Muslims were saying God struck him down. Allah struck him down because he became a Christian and left Islam. So, Understanding and, 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 and saying the idea, just coming to terms with the fact that sometimes God doesn't act when it looks like by our best, by our best assessment it would be best to back, act in his interest on this um, uh, is one of the things mature Christians have to deal with. Amen? Any, any question about that, just as an intro um, or, or comment? The other is to remember this. Part of being a mature Christian means there are some certain things you're not going to fully understand the Lord. You're not going to fully understand all the reasons in your life on this side of eternity for certain things happening to you. In other words, remember your finitude. Remember, this isn't a this isn't a get-out-of-jail free card. It just means part of a mature Christian life is saying there's things God does and has said that I don't fully understand. And that's okay, because I am, what, racked with a sin nature and habits, right? There's there's an enemy. Uh, going to and fro, seeking whom he, whom he may devour. And I'm finite and not God. So there's going to be things. This is one of the things I, I start with when somebody has issues with the Bible and contradictions or issues and the difficulties in the Bible. I'm like, well, start with the fact that you are an individual human being that doesn't know everything. You are dealing with a book, a divinely inspired authored book that's cross timeframes, trans-temporal, and cross-cultures. So there's going to be parts that you fully get, hey, right with you right now for this culture in 21st century, and there's going to be things that don't, that you don't understand, that do seem difficult. And that also is a way that God can disagree with you as well. Well, I don't really understand how this all works out. Well, continue seeking. Continue looking. It doesn't. In other words, we need to come with a really, uh, like God said, a seeking, humble heart, um, and understand that there's certain things you're not going to understand, um, especially when it comes to specifics. But I just wanted to intro of that and say, here it is. Um, I'm going to try to keep it uh, fairly simple. But let me just put it this way: We're going to go over some of the more, some of the, I, I guess, mildly technical aspects today, just so you know the lay of the land. My my purpose for this first session, before we get to the second, is to let you know when you're talking to somebody. Uh, about where this issue is globally, um, where I don't know if you know, but it's it, the problem of evil is still used quite commonly, but we don't hear a lot of information about where it is with regard to the best thinkers in the world, where it is with regard to uh, people that have used it as a, battering, a batterer against God. Um, we don't really hear a lot about that, and we don't think, uh, think it through a whole heck of a lot. Last but certainly not least, remember if you've ever been stymied on being at the altar praying with somebody or praying with someone over the phone or family member and you don't know, it's okay to say, I I don't know the reasons why God refrained and didn't answer your prayer. I I, I don't know. Um, That's all right uh, to certainly say, but remember this as well. It's always easier to ask a tough question than give a tough answer. All right? Any good question requires in the answer you tying together different ideas from different disciplines. So um, to expect a vitamin-sized answer uh, because you could say the question quickly. Um, you think of a, a question like this, what is consciousness? Like your if your answer isn't just it's something in, in you, in you <laughs> if you're going to give it the, 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 the props that question deserves, you're going to have to tie together different ideas from different fields. So remember that too. You know, if uh, one of the hard parts about dealing with the problem of evil is because it's connected to suffering. And a superficial answer makes you look stupid and makes you look flippant. A very lengthy answer, people get, right, they get too bogged down and they can't follow. So we're going to try to hit that middle ground here and do this. And I'm going to, again, try to summarize as best I can about three years of studying this pretty intensely at a graduate level. But if there's no comments about this, I'll go ahead and, and go to the next slide. Is there any comments at all about, about this first slide, about what we've talked about so far? Just kind of prepped you for it. Um, Yeah, yeah, Bill, go ahead. hmm no, I know. And I do want to be superficial. I, I'm with you. I, one of the things, obviously, let's put it there. When I do this with college students, just, yeah, put your hand back up if I forget, Barbara. I don't want to forget. I want to hear what you have to say. One of the things I do with college students is this is a course that takes weeks and weeks and weeks. We really throw the whole kitchen sink at this thing. So we are, by definition, doing a Sunday school limited kind of engagement here. Um, but that would be obviously one of the answers to say there is a benefit. To, we do have a religious tradition that has there's a benefit to suffering. Barbara, what do you have to say? The, yes, that is a constant scriptural uh, uh, promise. Uh, I think we could probably go around the room and have people say, gosh, I, I am a different person on the back end of suffering. But there, I can see some of it now. I, yeah, uh um it's one of those things that yeah again, when you're going through it it's not um you know before I got down here, I never did funerals and eulogies, and that's a particularly difficult uh scenario, and it gets more difficult if they're not believers, right I've had to do those as well and and do chaplain work with that sort of thing so um but it is a, a again a a reminder that there there usually are I, it's unsettling to people, but I can remember uh, just recently watching uh, over COVID, one of the California pastors out there, a guy named Jack Hibbs, say, God used cancer to bring three of my four non-believing family members. Basically, that forced their vision to eternity and about death. Like, you normally doing all this stuff, and then, right, it's fairly final. So, he said, you know, I I wish there was a ton of other ways, but they had completely shut me out, completely. So, uh, so he said, so that's the way, I mean, that's the way I see it. They're in heaven now because of that t- terrible malady. So, um, so yeah, very, very interesting. Anybody else? Yeah, Juke, go ahead. Right, right. Doesn't follow. Yeah. Yeah, Juke's the, the, basically saying that it's if you're going to take something that we don't all have a real grasp on, and, and there are some people committed to saying that every religion's most prominent function is how they help you understand this and get through it, but that therefore means there's no God, it seems... It seems like a stretch, so we'll try to put some meat on the bone of that here in a second and show you some of the versions of it. But I want to at least start with this. There's three basic ways, if you were, say, in a comparative religions class or uh, or even a philosophy class, that they would frame the problem of evil. Believe it or not, uh, Christianity and Christian scholars and scholarship have dealt with the two thorniest problems of evil out there. And what I mean by dealt with is even enemies and agnostics of Christianity and agnostics have said, Eh, That's not necessarily a a defeater for Christianity. Um, Now, the reason that's important is when you go online, the problem of evil is presented as if it's this insurmountable thing that's never been dealt with and never been issued. But let me give you the three basic ways. The first problem of evil is called the logical problem of evil. The second is called evidential, and I'll explain what that means here in a second. And the third is the one we all deal with, the emotive problem of evil, sometimes called the pastoral problem of evil, okay? This is in your notes, so you should have this. Um, So... um, I'll give you a one-sentence phrase of the difference between them uh, here in a second. But um, there's two, of these three, there's two basic ways to categorize uh, the problem of evil. The two basic ways are, number one and two, the intellectual or philosophical problem of evil. In other words, does this constitute evidentially, philosophically, a defeat? what they call a defeat or something that wipes Christianity and the God idea off the map? And then three, the personal or pastoral POE, problem of evil, is one that we all deal with. It's the one we deal with most consistently in ministry, okay, the, the pastoral or emotive problem of evil. Um, uh, we're going to talk about the resources we have for the emotional problem of evil, but I'll just say this. If you had to walk out of this class right now, it's really interesting that, Over and above any religious tradition on the planet, the two thorniest versions, the intellectual or philosophical problem of evil, number one and two, the logical version and the evidential version, have been largely answered to the satisfaction of most of our critics. Very, very interesting. So, um, again, that's not something that's one of those things that's kind of snuffed out in online discussions. You don't hear that. We're going to talk about what's been done over the history of, uh, of this problem, um, but I'll just tell you, put it this way. Skeptics that used to be really blatant about problem of evil, meaning there's either no God or no good God, or at least Christianity should be reformulated, have backed off that position significantly. Um, there's a, 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 a late scholar by the name of J.L. Mackey, an Australian scholar that used to use problem of evil to hammer Christians all the time. And before he died, he said, my version and both of my biggest books and best-selling books on this subject have both been answered. In fact, I, 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 I don't believe that my books constitute a defeater for Christianity or God anymore. And that was the guy who used the logic. He was using the logical problem of evil in his books. So let's look at uh, the logical problem of evil and just put it in a one sentence. We'll we'll actually separate it out into a multi-part argument in a second. The logical problem of evil, or the philosophical problem of evil, goes this way: It's impossible for God and evil to exist at the same time. Now, this version of the problem of evil has been answered. Started with a philosopher, a brilliant philosopher, arguably before he got dementia. The brightest Christian on the planet, which is a Notre Dame philosopher by the name of Alvin Planiga Alvin Plantinga. he's got three a trilogy of three little books uh, that he used to answer the problem of evil. But the the one he used is something you're quite common, probably familiar with. Reformed people don't like the free will defense. Um, what's a reformed person? A person that's committed to a Calvinistic understanding of the of the Bible, um, but the free will defense was basically uh, was employed and used by Alvin Plantinga to answer people in the world of philosophy that use the problem of evil to say, "I can't believe you're a Christian. I can't believe you work at a Catholic university. I can't believe you believe in this God stuff. Doesn't evil defeat the idea of God?" Plantinga said, "No, and 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 quite no." What does a reformed person do? Um, a person that's committed to Calvinism just says, "Well, I." I'm gonna, I'll i engage the problem of evil, but at the end of the day, God did it, so, you know, God's got control of evil and good, and his sovereignty is complete, and so um, they, don't, they reject the free will defense, but they still interact with the logical problem of evil, okay? Um, let me try to make it even simpler. In the logical version of the problem of evil, it says this. You've got this good, loving God, and then you've got evil and suffering. There's nothing that can make those two go together. So if one of them has to go, you're going to deny evil and suffering? Well, believe it or not, some Eastern religions do that. Or are you going to deny God? Well, we, it's hard to deny that we, we experience evil and we experience suffering, so God's got to go. That's the logical version of the problem of evil. This is the one still most commonly used online. I'll give you, uh, as usual, C.S. Lewis is incredible here, the way he summarizes it. But that's, that's the logical or the philosophical problem of evil. That's, that's been largely abandoned by most skeptical philosophers, largely. Again, you wouldn't know this if you went on blog sites. But if you were at, uh, a, like, philosophy conferences, logic, uh, pl- places where logicians meet that teach logic, um, uh, even amongst uh, skeptics, they'll admit this, is, this version is largely gone. Now, that's interesting, right? That means that the resources within the Bible and Christianity and amongst the philosophers that are believers in a higher power and Christians, they've answered this significantly. Usually by saying this, here's one, at least one good reason God would allow evil. If free will is important. If it turns out that your will needs to be significantly free enough for a love relationship to occur between God and you, then there's at least one thing that can go between evil and suffering and God, good loving God over here, and that's the idea that God would allow on a limited basis free will decisions to allow love to occur. Again, reformed people don't really like this answer. It would have been great. I almost had Wave here. I think he'll be here next week, but I almost had Wave Nunley here um, to go over this because he, he went to a reformed uh, uh uh, master's program, and so he, he actually likes the uh, free will defense, but he, he's got to be careful using it, given him, anyway, so the next version is called the evidential, or sometimes called the probabilistic, dealing with probabilities or statistics, problem of evil, and it goes like this, it is unlikely that God and evil would coexist, um, so usually this gets cashed out this way, there's too much evil, the amount is too high in the world for there to be a good loving God, or there's too intense of evil going on in the world um, uh, that there's no good reason why uh, God would uh, allow this, this amount or intensity of evil to exist while he exists as a good, loving God, okay? Um, believe it or not, the evidential's been answered as well, but it's actually a more difficult one than the logical. The logical problem of evil has what's called a deductive form. That means it, it, it's, if it runs through, it gets you a certain conclusion. It's been largely blown up. The evidential problem of evil um, uh, has been answered as well, uh, but it's actually a little more difficult because it's saying, "Look, God probably doesn't exist because there's probably too much evil that's too intense." You see what I'm saying? It's a mo- it's a more modest claim. It's not a, it's impossible that God and evil could coexist. It's saying it probably doesn't. He probably doesn't. And then last, the emotional. And maybe some of you have been here. I don't like a God that would permit any evil and suffering. I don't really like a God like that. Um, this is one that again. Uh, that you get with certain Christians um, when they go through intense suffering uh, where they say, you know, something to the effect of, I-, I really don't want to serve a God that will allow this to go on in my life, take it away, um, that sort of thing. Uh, this is also why, because we live in an age where uh, you doing what you want to do and you're, uh, you know, whatever your emotional desire or feel is, is determinative for you. It's a place where, uh, you know, this is where we find ourselves these days. Um, one of the things I tell people is, uh, you know, when they were, when, when we'll just say, for, for instance, when Europeans were going through worse, much worse natural suffering, uh, Black Plague, uh, con- uh, conquest and annexation, um, they were less prone to write about problem of evil. And that's weird because they're suffering more than we are. Well, the reason is, is back during those times, about a little over a, 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 cent- uh, a, a millennia ago, you had people that realized God was God. You didn't have this idea that God loves me and I get to be his advisor. Um, so people would say, well, if I'm going through a black plague thing where one and three are dying, God's got good reasons to not stop it at this point. In other words, they treated God as if he was God. He's got better reasons. He's got better access to resources. He's God. You know, I don't want to go through the suffering. I want to pray that it goes away, but I don't think I know better than God. And that's the, the age we live in now says that sort of thing. Let me give you a couple, just a couple of quotes from guys that are either agnostic philosophers or atheist philosophers about certain versions of the problem of evil. The first one is from a guy named Daniel Howard Snyder. Um, he's got a big, thick book that you have to, get some, in some philosophy courses, you have to go through uh, called The Evidential Argument from Evil. So he's going, dealing with the second one. Um, but listen to what uh, Snyder says here. Um, uh, he said, the, the, both versions of the problem of evil have found their way to the dustbin. Of philosophical fashions no argument from evil I am aware of makes it likely or even reasonable to believe there is no God evil can't carry that evidential load so interestingly you have this agnostic philosopher very very well respected who's written a book on problem of evil saying now even if uh, the problem of evil goes through in one of these versions it's been answered but it doesn't mean there's no God you may have a bad God or a God that's not so all loving and all good but it doesn't, it doesn't follow that if, if you uh, believe one, uh, therefore God's non-existent, and it certainly doesn't mean the Christian God's gone. This is Paul Draper, an agnostic. Uh, I think he still works at Purdue. I agree, listen, with most philosophers of religion that theist, Christian theists, that means you believe in a higher power that acts in the world, theists face no serious logical problem of evil. So that first one Draper's talking about, um, that doesn't seem to be a serious objection anymore, and it's the one you find most commonly online. Uh <coughs> Listen to this one from Michael L. Peterson. In the final analysis, the logical problem of evil does not seem to be a promising avenue of attack against Christian theism. Ironically, the atheistic challenger begins by accusing the theist of committing a logical mistake and then ends up embroiled in logical fallacies himself or herself. Although version 1, the logical or philosophical version, is by far the most popular formulation of the problem, it appears no more effective than the other two formulations— All the formulations of the argument are now thought to exhibit a certain syndrome of errors or syndromatic errors. So for people that think the problem of evil constitutes a great argument against God's existence or even against the Christian account or definition of who God is, these are people that don't agree with us. This is what we call enemy attestation that say, no, it doesn't anymore. It could take a different different avenue uh, of attack for sure. All right, so – Let's look at uh, dividing it up real quick. This is the formulation you find most commonly online. If you had to put it in its quickest format, idea number one: If God were all good, He would want to prevent all evil. Uh, number two: If God were all powerful, then He would be able to prevent all evil. Evil exists. Remember, there's that thing in the logical version. You have evil and suffering over here. We're going to deny. It. We can't deny that's not that's real. That does, it has real world effects. Um, but then you have God over here that's largely hidden from our from at least from our view. Um, There's a conclusion, therefore, an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. So this version's been largely defeated because if there's just one thing that could make sense of God allowing evil, if there's one reason, one decent reason, this whole argument falls apart. So that's why, at least when Plantinga gave the free will defense in a couple of different books, but uh, mainly God, freedom, and evil, um, you got this sort of thing going away. So again, premise one, if you're going through this logically, fails. Um, because God wouldn't necessarily want to prevent all evil if having the ability to choose evil makes love actualizable, if it makes love a real option. Now, again, we can get into this. This also would go some ways to explain why God would put a, a tree in the garden. Um, if, uh, again, if love, if choice is crucial to having a true love relationship, and if you do believe that forced love is, a, is, is rape <laughs> um, or robotic love isn't real love, um, these are actually live questions today. <laughs> um, then, then this is the first idea that fails. That God could have good reason for allowing evil. That doesn't mean He doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that uh, that evil de- destroys His existence or even uh, His goodness. And then uh, premise two fails as well. This is why most people have given up the logical or the or the philosophical problem of evil. What do I mean by premise two failing? Um, if, again, if God thinks choice is important, he can't give you choice and take it away from you at the same time. One way to do it is to just make you into robots, but do you have a love relationship with a robot? Um, uh, again, the premise two would say, okay, just because God can't create a contradiction doesn't mean he's not God, okay? One of the things I used to do when I'd go speak at high schools is I'd have one of the biggest football players come forward and I'd give him a paperclip. And I'd say, you're a pretty big guy and uh, you've got clear power over this paperclip. And I said, so could you fashion this paperclip into a triangle? Well, that'd t- take seconds, right? And I said, now make it into a uh, square. And so he'd take a little longer and I'd keep you know, talking to him and then do the square. And I said, now make it into a triangle square at the same time. And he's like, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's either three or four corner. I'm like, no, no, no. Well, you're a big, powerful guy. Don't you have the desire to do this? He's like, well, I, but I I can't, that's not, a, and I try to tell him that doesn't count against God's power for him not to create contradictions. So he can't both give you authentic will with real consequences and take that away from you at the same time. Um, now, again, some of our Reformed uh, brothers and sisters might disagree with this, but the reason the second premise fails, most Reformed folks would go after the first and just give reasons why God would allow evil, right, even in his, in his, uh, or even supply evil to you. But premise two for those that are more of an Arminian bent or the uh, people that, that aren't necessarily given to, uh, uh, to the Calvinistic interpretation of the entire Bible uh, would say power can't make contradictions. So you can't fault God for giving you free will and there being consequence to it and then wanting to take it away too because you don't like the consequence. So, um, so it really comes down to whether you, think, um, whether you think that somebody needs to have the ability to say no for the love of thing to be authentic. Um, And you can kind of see this in our reactions to things, right? So if some guy uh, comes to the altar and is marrying a girl and you come to find out that the reason he's doing it is because he found out she had a really thick bank account, why do all of us in this room go they're not really in love? Because there's something that seemed to override his will that wasn't loving this girl for who she was. If a girl and a guy come into a a, a setting together and somebody asks the couple, the girl, how y'all doing? And he puts his hand on her neck and grabs her neck. And she's like, we're doing fine. Um, you don't think they're in love, really, do you? Right? You see what I'm saying? Um, if somebody uh, decides to get engaged to someone, right, and they're like, he finally said he loved me and gave me a ring. It's like, oh, yeah, we paid him, put him up to that. It was a hilarious joke. Now, you, like, why, why don't they go, well, no, they still love me? It's because there's something that has significantly affected the free will, right? Something significantly has come in there and affected your choice to do this sort of thing. So it defeats, that, that, that's the idea. So, so for those under number two that would go after premise number two, they'd say, well, yeah, it looks like choice is everything when it comes to true love. Everything. So, um, in other words, your ability to make some level of a free choice authenticates the love experience. If you come to the altar and say I do to someone and it turns out there's all sorts of other things that you're doing instead of loving them, uh, we normally say they're not really in love. Um, so, yeah, so um, any questions about the logical version? We're getting close to the end here, but go ahead, Jude. Yeah. No, they don't. He can, God can certainly decide to self-limit his control for a greater good. Um, let's put it this We do. I mean, anybody, a parent in here? What if I told you you're not a loving parent unless you take away every pain that could ever happen to your child or if you if i told you you're not a loving parent unless you literally do everything for your child that's really not a loving parent at all so clearly there's things that need to be allowed even from a loving parent to a child to happen to them right you ever met somebody whose parents literally did everything for them and took every difficulty away from them? They're they're the worst adults out there. They're some of the worst adults among us. Um, so, uh, and Jude makes a really good point too. Notice here, you I know you should dodge in natural evil, uh, you know, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes. No, no, the vast majority of evil we deal with is free will based evil or will based human evil, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Very interesting, huh? This was the number one thing too uh really really wild um anybody else comment it, it just yeah uh, uh okay um bill go ahead yeah uh you He did he did make a a, a a decent intro into that by saying, "Hey, you've got natural evil or chance, but evil that doesn't seem to have a human will behind it. We call that natural evil. It's evil that seems to come out of nature. Sometimes we call those acts of God because we don't have a there's not a, there's not a direct human component. And then there's evils of omission." where you just don't do something you should have done, right? You don't do something you should have done. Those are a little harder to figure out because, you how far does your responsibility go if you forget or you don't, you know, you could have helped nine ladies across the street. You only helped eight. <laughs> I didn't know about the ninth. Um, and then there's the most common, which is evils evils of commission, where you've intended to be selfish and put yourself above uh, others in a way that's pathological. Well, we'll come back next week. We'll do the evidential next week. We're already at uh, ten thirty-one. Um, well, we may end up making this uh, three, but we'll talk about the uh, the 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 actually the the more difficult one because it deals with just probabilities, and we'll talk about that um, uh, next week. But let me let me pray us out when we get over to, uh, or at least uh, not have to rush over to church. Gracious God, we thank you for this time. You are good to us. Uh, so good, Lord. Would you give us opportunities to give out of the magnificent splendor and abundant resources you've given us so many things, God, even something as simple as a, as a comfortable bed to sleep in at night. We thank you for this. We thank you for this time. Uh, I ask you that, it's, uh, that you continue to uh, just visit us, Lord, in our minds and hearts through the week and help us understand that uh, there's a lot more going on than, than our finite, small minds can get our minds around, but would you give us that understanding, not so that we are better than others or brag to others, Lord, but that we're able to give people a chance to look beyond their own pain and suffering toward you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you guys next week. Thanks for coming.